trusted and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Amen. All right, let's see here. Uh, i got to move my paper before I move on. Where are you? Uh, oh, there it is right there. Okay. And let's see. We have a um, couple prayer requests. I don't think I have any written down. Um, Tom, I got something for you here. Don't let me forget to give that to you. And uh, I've got to read that. And um, uh, all right, we've got Graham Wilson in Scotland. He uh, is asking for prayer for, um, let's see here, Jennifer's mother. She died, and yeah. they, they're praying about the family, the funeral. Um, uh, okay, uh, let's see, your dad's a believer. Okay, uh, so keep Graham and the family in prayer. They've uh, they got some things. I just got an email a minute ago from a guy named Jeff, and his father died. And so, you know, we should pray for him. He wasn't asking for prayer. He was just giving me an update. But we'll have Graham and Jeff in prayer. And uh, let's see. I think that's all of them that I've gotten. A little, little behind today because I've had some things to do. But I do have one thing to read. And then uh, if anybody wants to help with this, that's great. Uh, if not, I'll read it again on Sunday. Um, it's always good to hear from Pakistan. But um, getting a testimony is a great thing. Um, Let's see here. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is translated by uh, the guy in Pakistan. I'm sending my greetings to you all in the name of Jesus, our Heavenly Father. I am Ka'ali. I come from the Hindu religion and am thankful that God has chosen me and saved me by his grace, that I have assurance of eternal life. I want to share that about four months ago, I came to attend the Jesus Film meeting with my friend Lady. I noticed a great change in her life, and therefore I wondered how this happened in sudden, which anyway, uh, because I knew her from my childhood that we raised together in our neighborhood. I got married to a Hindu man who also lived in our same neighborhood. I asked my friend how she got changed by her attitude. <clears throat> she said she wanted to bring me to the meeting where I may learn about how to be changed in our attitude. I thought it was just a lecture to teach good behavior and learn social good manners. When I went to attend this meeting, I found totally opposite of my thoughts. I was surprised to learn about Jesus in his life. Most of all, I came to know that God loves us. Now, these are people that never knew that God loved them. They've been working their whole life trying to please these, these idols all over the place, 300 million gods in Hinduism. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, and he arranged substitute for our behalf. This was new to learn for me. I began to think so much about this whole plan of God uh, I've got to read it, just what it says, because it's a little hard to read. Uh, plan of salvation and raise some questions to uh, Brother Nazir, who did the translating, who led me through explaining a lot about God's creation and then salvation plan. I repented myself and prayed to God for his forgiveness. I was very thankful to my friend that she was the source to change my life. I realized I was also changed after accepting Jesus in my life. I was very afraid of my husband because he never knew about me attending this meeting. I was very secret and my friend also made me secret to my faith. I began to follow Jesus and prayed every day to him. A week ago, my husband knew about my faith in Christ and he has beaten me a lot. I requested him to leave me, please, but he beat me with an iron rod and he said, if you deny Christianity, I will otherwise kill you. He shouted at me. 
I began to cry loudly and immediately some people came from the neighborhood who helped me and my husband escaped from the house. Uh, he is still away to an unknown place. He never contacted me. I have one girl and I live on my own uh, and they sent photos of her. I am uneducated and therefore I cannot find work. I've been praying to God for his help that he may show me his way of peace and blessing. Yesterday while I was praying to God and my friend came to me and she also prayed with me that was so encouraged and comforting to me. I came to know that I should start my own housework as I have skills of sewing clothes and this may help me learn, uh, earn enough to get food and pay for the rent and utilities. My friend and I went to Brother Nazir and asked for his help to pray with me. He prayed with me and he said he will come to my house for prayer. I'm thankful that he came to my house today and prayed with me for some time. I am in need of more prayers and help that I want to start sewing at my uh, house and this would cost me about $218 to set things up and please pray God will help me also pray for my husband whose name is Manzur. I'm afraid of him and he may give me more trouble therefore I want to relocate to another place which would cost me another 210 to move. I believe God in his help and direction and safety and she sent her photo with her daughter and my daughter is afraid too. So uh, that's a petition for her, and uh, we'll go ahead and pray for them as well. Heavenly Father, uh, we lift up Graham and Jeff, who both have family issues that uh, are distressing them. And we also pray for this woman who's committed to you. Uh, we pray that you would uh, help her to be an example to her husband if he returns, and maybe he would have a change in her, his heart as well. So we lift up Manzur, and we just ask that uh, whatever happens, that uh, you will be glorified through it. And Lord, uh, difficult situation, something most of us cannot even understand, much less appreciate. But we pray for all of these people, and we also pray for the class. We pray that it will be handled properly and that you will be pleased with what is uh, spoken about here and how your word is handled. And if there's anything that is incorrect, we would pray that you would open our eyes to find that and to uh, understand that and to change it. And uh, Lord... Uh, we uh, thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I always say that, please, you know, if there's something wrong, you got to let me know. And uh, on Sunday, I had a little error in the sermon. It wasn't anything huge, but it was something that, of course, I was mortified to have anything that wasn't correct. And so I got that corrected on the YouTube video and in the uh, content. But, it, you know, most people would say, well, that's not a big deal, but it is to me. It's God's word, and we need to make sure that what we... Uh, do with it is right and uh, you know I don't mind typos in sermon sermons but I, I don't want to have anything that is not 100% correct from the Bible so um, having said that today is January 18th <clears throat> let's see here one Jan quick question yes I know there was a, um, a translation but chose me and repented? I'm not worried about that in the Good. slightest. No. I'm not worried about that. You know, I don't know uh, uh, what they said as far as that concerned, but that doesn't bother me in the slightest. No, when when we are uh, brought into uh, discipleship, we can get those things straightened away. But Good for deal. somebody that's been in Christ for a month and a half, yeah, that's, yeah, she, yeah. she believes in God. She I, doesn't, abs yeah. She doesn't, so, doesn't get the theology. It doesn't bother me in the yeah, slightest yeah. at this point. Um, Jesus, this is uh, Perfidus Prelates. Jesus surely chose his disciples knowing that sooner or later most of us would identify with impetuous, impulsive Peter. James Mitchell was a Peter, part preacher, part assassin, and perhaps with good reason for being both. 
He was a covenanter, one of the Scottish Presbyterians who vowed to resist English efforts to impose Anglo-Catholic forms on their churches. Their resistance drew fire from the monarchy and from the church itself. The church tormentor being the prelate, Archbishop James Sharp, who caught and killed Presbyterian like dogs. Something had to be done, Mitchell reasoned. On July 11, 1668, as the archbishop sat in his horse-drawn coach, Mitchell pointed a pistol at him and fired through the open door. He missed, hitting another bishop in the hand. Eventually, Mitchell was captured, imprisoned, and tortured with the boot, a tight box fitted around the leg into which staves were slowly driven. Ouch! shattering the leg an inch at a time. Mitchell and his crushed limb were then thrown into a series of squalid prisons where he subsisted on snow, water, sprinkled with oatmeal. On January 18, 1678, the preacher and would-be assassin was taken to the center of Edinburgh for execution. Loud drumming drowned out his last words, but he had hidden away two copies of his message, and from the scaffold he flung them to the crowds. The next day, these words were plastered across Scotland. I acknowledge my private and particular sins have been such as deserved a worse death, but I hope in the merits of Jesus Christ to be free from the eternal punishment due me for sin. I am brought here that I might be a witness for his despised truths and interests in this land, where, where I am called to seal the same with my blood and I wish heartily that my poor life may put an end to the persecution of the true members of Christ in this place, so much actuated by these perfidious prelates. The perfidious prelates, however, found more blood to drink in the years to come. Simon Peter had brought along a sword. He now pulled it out and struck at the servant of the high priest. The servant's name was Malchus, and Peter cut off his right ear. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. I must drink from the cup that the Father has given me. So, um, uh, that's a great idea. If you find that you are going to face execution because the Democrats don't like your faith, what I would suggest you do is carry two copies of it on you so that when you're being executed, you can throw it out to the audience and maybe one of them will have a conversion. Great job. Um, hey, I say that in jest, but it's probably not far off. If, if they had their way in this country, that would, yeah, be, that, would, that would be it. So, I, you know, they, yeah. they are not the people that... Uh, uh, your mommy knew. Um, okay, put this here. And I, it does concern me. I read it and I thought that, right. but I'm not... I, for, I mean, it's not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it, she wasn't... Yeah. She, she saw Christ and what he did for her. Absolutely. Nothing else was... Yeah. Was well, you know, and you can repent after being saved. Yeah, I mean, that's... supposed to. Yeah. You change your mind. Absolutely. So, anyway. Um, okay, we are now in the book of 1 Timothy. We're rolling right along in it, too. Um Oh, I got that. I got to have that for Sunday. So where am I going to put that right there? Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, we're in verse 2. Give me a second to get rid of this. I'll put this here, and we'll open this. And then we'll, yeah, 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll back up and go through 1 just okay. so you all get the flavor of it. Yeah. 1 Timothy uh, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, 
To Timothy, my true son in faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So there you go. Um, okay, uh, it, it, it is in the right position. That's why I was... cameras on him and then on you. Oh, okay. Good. I, I just turned around. I saw that and I thought I didn't push the button today. So good. You've got it figured out. That's great. Okay, um, verse 2. Paul, after having identified himself and his commission, now identifies the main recipient of the letter. Anybody? I'm sorry. Timothy. As noted, based on the apostolic identification of himself, something Timothy was perfectly aware of, the letter was certainly intended to be for more than just Timothy, though. He was to have it available for any and all to see and read. Now, it is an epistle of church doctrine as much as it is a personal letter. He wrote to Timothy, but uh, as God does things, he, you know, I don't know if Jeremiah knew his writings would be put into a, a Bible someday or not, but they are. And uh, Paul may or may not have known that what he was writing was inspired by the Lord. He may have just been writing it out and the Lord was guiding him, but here it is. It's right in here. And because it is, it now is our marching orders, specifically for the pastoral, you know, positions and the deacons and elders. But, um, yeah, it's just something that uh, when he wrote it, he was writing to Timothy, but now it belongs in the Bible. It is canon, and we are to hold fast to it. Anyway, however, it is still a personal letter written to Timothy, and as he says, a true son in the faith. <clears throat> the word translated here as true is the word Genesios. Yes, Genesios. It literally means born in wedlock. Thus, it means legitimate or genuine. However, it came to carry an affectionate or endearing sense. Therefore, Paul's words are not only identifying Timothy as a true Christian, but as a true son of his because of their like faith in Christ. The bonds were as strong as if Timothy was Paul's own legitimate offspring. As Paul personally took Timothy under his wings, and as Timothy stayed with Paul while so many others departed, the bond was all the stronger. And, you know, we see that with uh, Paul. He lost a lot of friends over the years, but, you know, what is it, John 6, a lot of the disciples turned back and didn't follow Jesus any longer. And Paul, you know, he uh, probably was, if you look at how he handled things, he probably was not the kind of guy that some people wanted to deal with. He was very direct and uh, sometimes we take direct people and we think, I don't want to be around them because they're so direct. But then you think about what they said and it convicts you and you think, well, I, he was right. And then you go back and hang around with him again. But um, yeah, you know, but uh, he and uh, what's his name? Barnabas had a, a paroxysm. They got so angry, they were almost fighting each other. And uh, uh, there is no hint of them ever reconciling. It doesn't mean they didn't, but it's not in the word. And um, but with um, Mark who the paroxysm was over, he reconciled with him. And he even says, you know, uh, send Mark or whatever. And so uh, uh, there is reconciliation, but it's probably purposeful that the Bible doesn't include any specific reconciliation with Barnabas. Even if there was, even if they were best friends for the rest of their lives, it's probably purposeful so that we can learn that we're not going to reconcile with everybody. And if there was this note of them getting reconciled, then everybody would feel like I... 
I, I'm obligated to reconcile with this person that I cannot stand being around. And, uh, you know, we should never have that forced on us. Uh, we don't have to like everybody in Christ. We do need to love them, but we don't need to like them. And uh, the people you don't like, you just don't have to be around. So anyway, that's just a speculation on my part, but uh, my guess is that uh, that was intentional by the uh, word to not include, um, uh, you know, some people are just so acerbic that it's impossible for you in your demeanor to associate with them, whereas they may get along with somebody else really well. And then, of course, there are those people that don't get along with anybody, anybody. but uh, like Rick back there, he's kind of like that. <laughs> In Acts uh, 16, verse 3, Paul even circumcised Timothy in order to ensure that the Jews would be more responsive to the message of Christ. Okay? This was not, and unfortunately, you know, you, you get the Hebrew roots people and the people that just want to push law on you all the time, that uh, they try to take what he did to Timothy and say, see, you have to be circumcising. It's completely contrary to the message of Scripture. But, I'll read what I had to say, and if I don't say it, then I'll say what I want to say. It was not a means of making Timothy, here it is, uh, acceptable for salvation, but a means of ensuring that Timothy would be properly accepted by those Jews who needed to hear the gospel message of Christ. Why? Because Timothy's mother was Jewish. Jewish. And so they would have been offended that this Jewish guy wasn't circumcised. And so just to avoid all of the complications and the baggage that would have gone along with defending him every single time they went somewhere, he circumcised him. And But whereas Titus, he was adamant. Titus was not a, a, a Gentile, I'm sorry, a Jew. He was a Gentile. And he adamantly argued against that. No circumcision, okay? He did it for expediency's sake only with Timothy. If anybody ever tries to throw that at you and see, well, you need to observe the law because this and this, all these stupid points they come up with, it is a terrible mishandling of Scripture, okay? It's absolutely, let me read this to you just so that you know what Why I'm you saying here. For it? Let me no, just I don't need to them. look. I've got it, but go ahead. Well, okay, so... He, his mother was Jewish, yes. and, and he was not circumcised his father was until a he met Paul. Paul. Yep. But the thing is, is he went through his entire life as a Jew not being circumcised. Wasn't That's that right. making his life complicated even No, then? because he, you know, he was just doing his own thing. Mom and dad were, listen, I got friends that are uh, Gentiles married to Jews, uh, males and females, or vice versa, and... I don't think anybody ever asks if they're circumcised. Right, but but they had to be some sort of a test or else it wouldn't be a Well, thing, yeah, I so. mean, when, you know, it, in the Roman Empire, it, I don't know if you've ever seen where they go to the bathroom. It's kind of It's like 15 there. toilets in a row and they all just sit down in public. I mean, it was it was very Right. And so it's going to be evident. You go to the bathhouse and, you know, they're not wearing swimsuits like we do today. The guys just go in and they're all, you know, it's like going to Japan. You go into a bathhouse in Japan, you better have no modesty, okay? Or a sports yeah. bathroom yeah. in the stadium, the old stadium. I don't know anything about those sports and me. But here's what I wanted to read here. Um, um, uh, where is that... Um, uh, circumcision, and he says, and uh, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, I'm not sure where that is. Um, uh, God forbid, for not even those who are circumcised, keep the law. Um, anyway, uh, it's right here in front of me. It's either in five or six, uh, uh, Galatians five or six, and I'm not going to spend all day looking for it, but uh, he's very clear on that. I tell you that if you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing, okay? I, and the reason why is because you're trying to merit what God has already given you, 
you believe by faith and then you say, well, I got to be circumcised because this guy told me to. All of a sudden you're putting aside the grace of God. And he says, I tell you, if you do this, you are a debtor to the whole law because circumcision is a part of the law of Moses. And it's not, well, I'm going to do this and not this. If you do one part of the law of Moses, you are obligated to the whole of the law of Moses. And that comes right out of James where he says, if you break one law, you've broken the whole law. It's a codified whole. It's not like, and that's the fallacy of these Hebrew roots people today. If they walk around and they say, well, I observe the Sabbath and I don't eat pork and I, uh, you know, I got myself circumcised, but none of them walks around with a, a tzitzit or, a, a, you know, the garments that are required by the law. If they uh, have a garden, I'm certain that they probably put uh, tomatoes here and they throw in some, uh, what do you call them, uh, some other vegetable, which is not allowed in Israel. You can't mix different seeds and all that kind. And the, the law is this giant burden on the people. It's a giant burden. And nobody, nobody has ever observed the law of Moses fully and completely. Nobody except Jesus. So uh, it's just a fallacy that people do that. But he, for expediency's sake only, he circumcised Timothy for no other reason. And it, it, he explains that right in the book of Acts. You know, and uh, here we go. Uh, where was that? Um, uh, yeah, okay, uh, gospel message. In circumcising him, it would eliminate prejudgments about Timothy's status. Paul wouldn't have to sit down and explain the entire uh, book of Galatians to him word for word. He could just simply avoid all that. So he's walking around with Timothy. In other words, it was a helpful tool for evangelism. And Paul himself says, you know, when I'm around Jews, I become a Jew that I might save Jews. And I became like those not under the law to save those not under the law. I made myself all things to all people that I might save some. And I know that's a misquote, but that's his idea there is that you do what is expedient to get people to know who Jesus is. And then you feed them right doctrine. Okay. You don't have to uh, uh, shove doctrine down people's faces first. You just get them saved. And then after that, uh, you want to go ahead and, and do your best to get them into a, a right understanding of the word. And that comes through Bible study, through personal reading. And But once again, we have to remember that uh, personal reading of the Bible is not something that people did for almost all of church history. And in most of the world to this day, they do not do it. And that is simply because there are not Bibles available. Up until, you know, the 1800s, people did not have their own copy of the Bible for the most part maybe the 1700s. But eventually people started to print Bibles by the billions and everybody's got 15 different versions on their shelf today and nobody reads any of them. But uh, we, we, we've got an overload of Bibles in the world and so we think that's the way it's always been and it's not, okay? It used to be that they might have one Bible in a town and it was that town's responsibility to teach the people of that town what the word said, okay? And if they didn't do that, then that was their responsibility. They were not taking care of the flock, okay? But, um, yeah, doctrine comes after salvation. We had a guy in here today to look at the roof because now we need a new roof on the building. And um, uh, so, uh, anyway, um, he was in here, and the first thing I said is, okay, now you're in our church. I want to ask you a question before you leave. And I said, you know, if you die, what's going to happen and why? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I know I'm, he's, he didn't say directly. He said, well, I'm a Christian. And he started talking about the study he goes to and all this. And I said, that's not what I want to hear. I said, I want to hear why are you going to go to heaven? And how can you justify that? And so I had to walk him through the simple gospel. 
And, you know, I was just, he understood the simple gospel. And when I got done with it, he says, yes, I believe that. But when you ask somebody about Jesus, you want to be as simple as possible. Okay. And don't get led astray by, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses will say the same thing. Well, I believe that Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And you, you want to make sure that they understand the simple gospel. And it took a little while to get him through that, but he, he does. He's very well versed in it. He understands that. But when my point is that when I am talking to somebody about Jesus and you ask them if they know they're saved or not, and they don't give you a direct answer, that means the next time they talk to somebody about Jesus, they're probably not going to get the same thing either. Mm. You want them to know how to find out if somebody is saved. And once they're saved, then you can talk to them all, all day long about doctrine, about you know what Bible they might want to read or what church they might want to attend and, and et cetera. But the main thing to me is when you talk to somebody new about Jesus, get that out of the way first. As long as they know that they are saved because Jesus died for their sins, was buried and rose again, go on from there. Um, it, it's important. It's a very important thing to do. And um, uh, anyway, so uh, once the rain is over, he'll come up and hopefully they'll get this uh, roof going. But it's been 10 years. You know, when we bought the building, um, it uh, uh, needed work on the roof. And they didn't do the, a whole new roof or anything, but they did some work. And then they said, we will put a coating on it which will last for, it's guaranteed for 10 years. And guess what? That was on October 17th of 2013. And so now it's 10 years. It, I got 10 years out of it. That's, so I can't complain, you know, but now they've got to go up and they've got to do all kinds of work. And he laughed, he pulled out, I gave him the, the original paperwork that I did on this roof. And he looked at it and he laughed and he said, boy, was that a long time ago? Only $60 an hour labor. And I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be bad. <laughs> I'm like, oh, uh, you know, oh, to me, $60 an hour, that would be more than I have ever made my whole life, okay? But to uh, hear somebody say, oh, that was a long time. <laughs> Uh, oh, they, they got walls up there. Yeah, the walls go up. Block. And so, yeah, they're block walls, and then the roofs are down below them. So if I want to run across these, it's not like Hollywood. You have to do a hurdle over every uh, block roof. Yeah. So anyway, um, but yeah, okay, whatever. We'll get back into this. Um, uh, in other words, it was a helpful tool for evangelism. In his letter to the Philippians, he noted his full trust in Timothy. Paul was con perfectly convinced that Timothy was capable of taking care of business and he uh, was trustworthy and he didn't have to go uh, monitoring them all the time. That says in um, uh, two, Philippians chapter 2 and it starts in verse 19. It says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. So there you go. He loved Timothy. He was very confident in him. And he knew that whatever was given to him to report to the church, it would be reported. And whatever the church was doing, it would come back exactly what Paul needed to know to make tweaks or corrections or a personal visit or whatever. So a very trustworthy guy. Um, next, after, once again, I'll say this because somebody might not have seen the first uh, uh, class. Uh, when we go through Timothy, these are prescriptive epistles. They prescribe for the church. I did not write these. 
Paul wrote these under the inspiration of the Spirit. So if you have a problem with something Paul says, and I analyze it as what Paul is intending, don't take it up with me. Go to God and complain to him, okay? Because these are the Lord's chosen instruments to give us the instruction for the church age, okay? It's not a cultural thing. It's not a time thing like that ended in the year 320, and we don't need to do that anymore. What it says here is what God expects for the church at all times. Until we are taken out of here in glory, these are prescriptive, okay? So, and that's especially with chapter two, but we're even gonna get into some, you know, one of them uh, that he says to uh, uh, Timothy, he says, uh, stop drinking water, but drink wine for your, your stomach, right? And he's not talking about drinking grape juice, okay? He's talking about drinking wine. Okay, that was used as a means of curative for him, okay? And I have no problem if you do not drink alcohol. I have no problem with that, okay? Uh, I have a problem when people try to impose that on people. Uh, the only country in all of Christian history, the only country that has ever not drank alcohol in their churches is anybody? US. The U.S. Anywhere you go in this world for the past 2,000 years, they have served wine and stronger drink even at church, okay? Um, that's just the way it is. And uh, we went through something called the prohibition in America. That was a time when uh, the people of the nation were you know, going through this distressful time and it became settled in the mindset of the people at that time. Before that, there was none of this in America, okay? The old churches before prohibition didn't have these problems. And uh, so, uh, uh, in other words, you are never going to get me to defend a person that says you can't drink alcohol. You're not gonna get me to do that. So what's that? Yeah, the Greek church. Of course they do, they're all over it, you know? Um, but, um, and I, I'm not just talking about for church either. I'm talking about you have a glass of wine at home or whatever, whatever you wanna do. Uh, the Jewish society was literally permeated with drinking alcohol, okay? Um, it, in the uh, ties of Deuteronomy 14, it doesn't just say to go out and have wine, it gives the word shahar which is extremely strong drink, okay? So when we get to these particular verses in scripture and I analyze them, don't take it up with me. Once again, just talk to the Lord about it. And um, I have somebody in my family that was, uh, uh, when we were all kind of uh, you know, going through the early stages of our developing faith together. And one of them said, well, I just disagree with Paul because, and uh, one, the reason in particular was what it says in uh, one Tim, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 2 about women being ordained and stuff like that. And I, I said at that time, I said, that's what the word says, okay? And so we have to, what's that? Herman has a question. Oh, no. Well, my thing is, I used to be Amish, so I can understand about things like this because, yeah. um, you know, they don't know alcohol. Well. Um, and I think that they have a lot to do with the scripture about to not be drunken, you know, to be, right. not, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Do not be drunk. I understand. Do not be drunk, so but it's, it's that's taking that one verse. And taking it out of context. I can do I can do all things with a verse out of context. Right. Okay. So uh, yes, and that's people will that. take those verses, and they'll also take one section which is descriptive in Proverbs. The, the reasoning for that reasoning is because I mean the Amish guys would go out and have beers and stuff on Saturday night. Trust right. me, I've seen the buggies go by my house, so I knew that. But the thing is, is though, I think it was more about. It was about controlling your people. Yes. And also oh, that's keeping, right. And also keeping the young people from really going overboard. Yeah. But also it was about more about, I think, the scripture of of the drunkenness. You know, do not be drunken with, right. you know, 
I understand. Okay, I got that. So I, I, I fully appreciate that. And uh, I can add we, no, okay, go ahead. Quick. Proverbs are interesting in the fact that they drink wine it gladdens the heart, and immediately right. don't get drunk. It's yeah. like it, there, right. there's there's that there's that fence right between right. the whole thing. Right. But sorry. yeah, yeah, that's all right. Okay, so we got that out of the way. I I am not one to advocate people to go out and drink. And I'm also not one to say that you can't drink. You want you do what you want with that issue. Uh, what she said is a verse that uh, is misused. You know, be not drunk with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. Right. Paul, and I will give you this as a counter argument to that. Uh, when uh, they're at the Lord's Supper and they were drinking, and he says, some of you get drunk, okay? And he says, what? Don't you have houses to get drunk in? Okay, so in other words, he had no problem with them drinking. He's, he had here. a problem with them doing it during the Lord's Supper. Right. Okay, so that's enough of that for now. Um, but you get the point is that, you know, the Bible has certain things in there that offend people. And if they find offense to it, and it's what the Bible says, then they need to reconcile that with God, not with, you know, the person that's teaching it. And especially if it's being taught in context, because as you know, you can do anything with a verse out of context. Okay, but if it is uh, properly handled, then you have to take it up with the Lord. Okay, anyway, um, let's see here. Um, and next, after having identified himself, Paul, and his recipient, Timothy, he adds in his customary greeting, but with one addition, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Here, and in his other two pastoral epistles, which are to Timothy and Titus, he adds in the word mercy. It is variously speculated on why he adds mercy into this salutation. But many commentators tie it in with Paul's advancing age and the realization of his soon departure. Um, speaking of soon departure, um, uh, one of the things, and this brings to mind what I was just talking about, but on a completely different level, is that uh, alcohol can destroy people. All right, it can absolutely destroy people. And so uh, if you were around somebody that uh, uh, was an alcoholic, you don't want to go drinking a beer at dinner. It's just, you know, you don't want to do that. Have sense when you're dealing with people. Um, people struggle in this life with issues, okay? Um, somebody that we see every week after we're in the projects um, has been dating a guy for years that struggled with uh, drugs, okay? He knew the Lord and he just could not get over his temptations. He's been to the church here, we all know him, that have uh, been in the projects, and on Tuesday he overdosed and died, okay? So you have to decide in your life, if you have a problem with something in your life, you need to get that reconciled, and you need to stay away from the temptations. Um, I was uh, listening to a preacher years and years and years ago, and he said, you know what, if you had a problem with alcoholism, you don't walk down the wine aisle of the grocery store to see if you're strong enough. He said, you stay away from the wine aisle. And so I would, you know, suggest that if you are struggling, with, and I don't care what the addiction is, there are all kinds of addictions in our life, but if you are struggling with them, you need to stay completely away from those things. And, you know, and if you are got your best friend in the world and he is still doing that, you need to not be around your best friend in the world because your life may depend on it. And uh, you need to be there for people that are struggling like that. And it's a sad thing that happened, but this is part of the human condition. So 
Um, if somebody has struggled with, I don't care what it is, if it's alcohol, if it's drugs or anything like that, if they are around you and you happen to have a beer, don't do it around them, okay? It's very important to use common sense uh, with issues like that. It's a very important thing. Anyway, um, so uh, example of public, oh yes, okay, so um, Paul realization, many commentators tight with Paul's advancing age. Uh, for example, the pulpit commentary says, it seems in St. Paul to connect itself with that deeper sense of the need and of the enjoyment of mercy, which went with his deepening sense of <coughs> sin as he drew towards his end. In other words, Paul was a sinner. He knew he was a sinner despite being saved, despite being an apostle. He admitted in Romans 7 that he struggles with this. And it may be that in his advancing age, he's putting mercy in there, understanding that that is one of the things that we absolutely need from day to day. You know, we've accepted God's grace, but we continue to need his mercy because of our uh, state before him. However, the letter is written to Timothy. Thus, the words apply to him, not to Paul. Paul petitions for mercy in his pastorals because he knew it is a job which requires a great deal of mercy from God. I can assure you that's true. It is a delicate, complicated, often frustrating, always tiring, and very sensitive job. And I don't remember when I wrote this, but I can tell you that that is 100, I'll read it again. It is delicate, it is complicated, it is often frustrating, and I would say always, just change often to always. It's always tiring and very sensitive job, okay? It's one of those things that when you decide I'm gonna do this, it's a commitment and you have to do it. And you know, I was thinking today about, um, I was talking to somebody, I, I take care of 7-Eleven in the morning and I'm out back and I'm breaking down the boxes and stuff for them. And, and uh, there's this lady that always comes over and smokes a cigarette and talks to me and cause I feed the birds there and she loves to see the birds. And, um, uh, she was talking about time off or something. I can't remember what. And I said, I can't stand time off. I can't stand it because then I, I just feel like I, I got to go do something. And so uh, I, I, I'm geared towards not taking days off and it doesn't bother me at all. But Hideko knows at the end of the day, when whenever it is, whatever time it is, I will say we might be in the middle of a TV show or something. I'll turn off TV and that's it. I'm done. I just had, I, I meet the end of myself. And uh, so it's, it's a tiring life because you know, you're going, uh, well, everybody else has got their Saturday and Sunday off. You're doing something. Okay. So there are no days off and I don't want any, I'm not complaining at all. doesn't bother me one little bit. It is a tiring thing. So um, uh, mercy is a great Thing that uh, Paul includes in there for these uh, pastors that will be appointed in the future because of his letters. Um, let's see here. So um, uh, where those under a pastor often feel it necessary to heap trouble on him, mercy is all the more necessary from the other direction. Okay. Without this endowment from God, the job will quickly lay low the pastor of the strongest faith and resolve. And uh, I, you know, I can say that I've seen in the past 15 years or 20 years, I have seen so many pastors that have buckled under the pressure. They've, they've fallen into this sin or that sin or one or another. They've ended up with other women. And I'm sure that they didn't intend to start that way. And, you know, I'm going to have a big church and I'm going to uh, be able to do what I want with the ladies in the congregation. They probably started out just thinking, I'm just going to... and. and 
it, it's a difficult thing. It, you know, especially when people are, it's one thing that, you know, you get emails from people and they're always telling you something about you. And it, you can get a very big head very quickly, okay? And so I don't like when people compliment me because I don't want that ever to be something like, oh, I deserve that, okay? If they do, they do, and I'm not going to tell them not to. But uh, the guy here that I was talking to today, um, once we talked after, before that, he never said this, but once we had talked about Jesus, he kept calling me sir, and I kept saying Charlie. Charlie, I don't, I don't want any title. I don't want any of that kind of stuff. I, we, we're on the same level here. But um, uh, where are we now? Um, okay, yeah. Um, uh, yes. And, okay, so therefore, Paul petitions for these things, grace, mercy, and peace to be bestowed upon his beloved son in the faith. And the petition is, his words, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in this verse, he changes the title of God from verse 1, from Savior to Father. This then is in line with the petition for grace, mercy, and peace. As a father would grant such things to his own son, so Paul knows that God will grant such things to his sons in the faith, which is grounded in Christ Jesus. And as God is the Father of Jesus, the petition for grace, mercy, and peace will naturally flow from Jesus to the Father's other children as well. Paul's salutation is a full example of a complete understanding of the workings of God towards his ministers who are also his sons by adoption. Life application. Paul's addition of mercy to the blessings upon Timothy, and thus all pastors, is only as necessary as the congregation he leads is willing to understand the nature of the job and the ability of the pastor to effectively handle that job. It is estimated that in America alone, anybody guess how many pastors leave the pulpit every week? Oh, I'd hate to guess. Every week. This is 10 years ago, so it's more now, I'm certain. 600 pastors every single week leave the pulpit due to the pressures of the job. 600. That's why we've got 15,000 seminaries in America. How many do you graduate out every year? And they, they last, some of them last a year and they can't take it. Some of them last 50 years and they, they die happy. You know, it, it just, it, it depends on you as a person, your individual constitution. And also, as I just said, it depends greatly on the congregation. Are they willing to give grace back to him? Are they willing to say, I'm not going to bother him with 4,000 phone calls a day or something or, you know, uh, emails there. I got to tell you, when I go through the emails, I, the first thing I do is if it's any longer than this, I just close it and I'll get to it later. If it's this long, I, I just, it's maddening. You know, some people will say 8,000 things and there'll be one question in the middle of it. And so you just, you know, everybody's different, but, you know, there, there isn't a lot of time to sit and read long emails. And so I put them at the lowest priority and I don't care what they're about. If they're long, I've got a lot of other things that I've got to do. And um, I don't get the emails on Sunday, mostly because it's full all day. And then Monday is sermon typing. I don't even open emails. So by Tuesday, there's always 100, 150 or whatever. And I got to prioritize. And if there's something in there that's very long, I'm sorry, it's going to go low priority. I just, I, and then the, the maddening thing is you send a response and 30 seconds later you get one back with another question. So uh, did you want something? No, okay, I thought you had your hand up. Anyway, uh, 
Haiku. Haiku. That's what we need to do with, with emails. Oh, yeah, haiku. That sounds good. Five lines. Five That's lines. it. Five That's lines. It. Any more than that, you're cut off. And, you know, sometimes I will actually get brave enough and I'll say, listen, uh, your email is too long. Would you shorten it down to just a paragraph, please? And I don't usually do that, but sometimes I'm just so overloaded with stuff that I just say, can you please shorten that and just tell me what you need? Um, because it almost sounds like arrogant or something, but it's, it's almost life-saving to do that. Anyway, it is what it is. Um, okay, so, uh, uh, yeah, 600 pastors a week leave the pulpit due to the pressures of the job. All right. Um, uh, in regard to the pastor, show a little mercy when he shows his humanity. After all, he's only human. Okay, we're in 1-3 now. We made a whole verse today. Wow. Okay. Oh, you know, before we go on, uh, we got plenty of time too. We got 45 minutes, so um, this will only take 42 minutes. Is to thank the people that bought us dinner last week. Yes. Like I say, only once a year I have a really big one for us, and so. Um, but uh, we had so much food here. Everybody didn't eat again until Sunday morning. I, we all went home and just rolled around and were uh, rolling pulleys for the next three and a half days. So there was. It was so good. Everybody said it was great. It was very good. So. Thank those people again. What? Who was it? Uh, well, I'll give the names again. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was Marie, Melissa, and Phil. Okay. They, uh, they, people just send in money once in a while and say, would you buy the, the church a pizza or something? And in this case, it was the one big thing we do. And I thought it was a good time to do it because Steve was back. Yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, we miss you. Okay, so here we go. We're in 1-3. Give me a second to turn to that, and then we'll get into it. Go ahead. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Okay, it's the same thing, but as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Okay. So, um, obviously, he, you can tell he's getting miffed already at the beginning of the letter because he knows that people are out there and they're teaching the wrong things. Sure. And it, it just, he was a doctrine person. He believed in the integrity of Scripture, and he believed in the integrity of getting things uh, sound. Okay, so is that somebody driving by or yes, what is sure it? Is. Oh, okay. Oh, boy, yeah, very <laughs> annoying. Okay, so let's see here. After his initial greeting... Paul now begins the main portion of his letter by reminding Timothy of words previously spoken to him. As I urged you is a phrase intending to call to memory the conversation of a previous time, which was when I went to Macedonia, Paul's words. Some tie this event into Acts 20. So in Acts 20, verse 1, it says, and we've already gone through that. Oh, I love when this happens. It happens, uh, you know, once or twice or three times a year. But um, I'm uh, typing the commentary in Acts. I typed uh, Acts uh, 24.17, I think it was, this morning. And while I'm in the car listening, there's Acts, and I got to 24.17. I said, yes. Okay, so it only happens a couple times a year, but uh, the Bible gets back to where I'm at, and it's always this nice synchronicity. But um, Acts 20, and it says there... Um, oh, one more page, Charlie. Um, oh, yeah, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Okay, so they think this might have been the time that this was written. However, various scholars see this as a different trip to Macedonia, which occurred after the completion of the book of Acts, which was after his first imprisonment in Rome. 
This seems more likely because Timothy was sent to Macedonia in Acts 19.4, and Paul joined him by going to Macedonia in Acts 20, verse 1. After that, they returned together, as is recorded in Acts 20, verse 4. Therefore, it is more likely that this is a later trip into Macedonia for Paul, occurring after his first Roman imprisonment. Okay, After this period of time, incorrect doctrine had crept into the church at Ephesus, and it so infected it that Paul's letter is now required. Very sad, but that's the way it is. And, you know, that's churches in general. You know, we've talked about this a million times where uh, churches start out strong and they start getting infected by people for one reason or another, and it's usually never intentional to begin with. Uh, the example I like to give rather than a church is because it's so obvious is uh, the seminary. And the seminary starts with a great creed. It starts with, you know, we're going to have uh, the best teachers and we're going to hold the sound doctrine, and then the Hebrew teacher dies. And you have to have a Hebrew you know, uh, instructor. And so you just go out and you look for Hebrew instructors and all the good ones are taken. And there's this guy that is a little off on the deep side, but it's only teaching Hebrew. He's not teaching doctrine. And so we're going to hire him. And so they have a Hebrew teacher in there and he starts saying things that he shouldn't be saying because it doesn't match the doctrine, but they can't hire another teacher because they don't have any uh, uh, available Hebrew teachers. And the next thing you know, he recommends somebody else because this guy is out and pretty soon the whole seminary has gone completely away from scripture. All never intending, it's just one little thing at a time that happens in life. That's how churches go away. That's how uh, seminaries go away is people are not careful to watch and guard the word. And that's what Paul is dealing with right here. East. In his, what's that? East. Yeah, a little east. That's right. And Paul says it explicitly in, what is it, 1 Corinthians 5, I believe. I may be wrong, but I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. Don't you know a little yeast uh, leavens the whole lump? Okay, let me see if that's correct. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it says... Um, uh, yeah, it, uh, there it is. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. The point being that you are a church. If you are saved believers, then that means that you are unleavened. You are living in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a pilgrim feast. You've got the Feasts of the Lord, and there are three pilgrim feasts, which picture your life in Christ. And he's saying you are unleavened. And he says, because of that, purge out the old leaven. Get that out of your life and live according to the status that Christ now sees you, okay? And if you don't, you're going to end up just like the person I talked about earlier that overdosed this past week. And now he's got uh, uh, people that loved him that are completely devastated. Their lives are upheaved and he no longer has any life because he threw it away on drugs. Okay, uh, he, he understood the Bible. He understood that he needed to pursue it and he just failed to do it. Okay, so uh, whatever the leaven is in your life, you've got to monitor it and you've got to keep it out. Um, all right, so where are we? Uh, we're in one three still. Okay, so um, uh, they failed to listen to Paul's warning accompanied by tears to stand fast on the doctrine of Christ. Once again, Acts 20 verses 25 through 38. Let me take you there. Just in Acts 20, and now we got to go back again. Acts 20. Oh, hang on a sec here. 25 is what I want. Acts 20. Come on, Charlie. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And then 25. He says, um, 
And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that the, for three years I did not cease to warn you, every one night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, that's his exhortation to these people. They were the elders of the church. They had come all the way to see him. And this was the last words that he would speak to them before he went off to Jerusalem and uh, ended up getting arrested. And right now we're in uh, Acts 23 and he's uh, at, uh, you know, getting ready to be shipped out to Caesarea. And Caesarea, he's going to meet with Felix and they're going to come and uh, Acts 24, they're going to be speaking lies against Paul and he's going to defend himself. And, uh, you know, so they've got no case against him. It, it, there's nothing that they have that is valid against him. And yet uh, Felix wants to grant the Jews a, uh, uh, you know, a favor. That's right. And so he says, well, why don't you come up to Jerusalem and we'll do you there? And he could have said no. He could have said, you know, or yes or whatever. He could have said whatever he wanted, but it would have been the end of it. But Jesus had already said to him what? He came to him and said, you will. That's right. You're going to go to Rome. And so he uh, uh, said, I appeal to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. Yep. So hey, the Lord's will is going to come about. That's all there is to it. The Lord's will is going to come about. If you think somehow you're going to thwart God's will by committing suicide, okay, or euthanasia nowadays up in Canada, people are saying, I want to control my own death. Let me tell you what, you're not controlling anything, all right? Uh, the Lord knew you were going to do that, and you're just fulfilling what he knew was going to happen. God doesn't learn anything, okay? He doesn't get anything. He is. He knows. Everything is laid out before him before he ever created a, a grain of sand. So uh, all we're doing is we're just bucking against him with the things we do with our own lives. Uh, but he has a plan, and, you know, that ought to be the most comforting thing in the world. Not a, a point of, you know, if he has a plan, he knows exactly what's going to happen with you in your life, and he knows exactly where your life is going to go and what you're going to do, and he's going to carry you through to a good end, then all of the stuff that happens in the meantime isn't that important in the bigger picture. It may be terrible. It may be very trying. It may be very troubling, you know, uh, depending on what happens with her. It may be difficult on us. It may be something that I can't stand to see, you know, or it may be something that the Lord is merciful and it'll be behind us very quickly. I don't know. All I know is that there is a better end promised to us. And so that's just what we have to hold on to. 
It, it ought to be the most comforting thing in the world, knowing that Jesus died for your sins and he has got you covered, okay? All the other stuff is just, we're doing our time here. We should be telling people about Jesus, staying in his word, reading the word, filling our minds with it, and you know, just living out our lives as best we can according to what the word says. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, so we, uh, Acts 20, because of this, a letter of instruction, doctrine, and warning is now issued to Timothy. But it is a letter which is intended for all to read and understand. We know this once again because it is now in the word of God. All right. It may have been a personal letter to Timothy. Paul may have intended for him to show all the other pastors in the area, but God knew that this would be in Scripture, one of the 66 precious books that we have to understand his will for us. His reminder to Timothy of their previous conversation was that he was to remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That's his words, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now remember, what we just read in Acts was to the leaders of Ephesus. And now he's writing to Timothy, and they've already doing what he said was coming. They're already doing that. Okay, and by the time you get to Revelation, let's see what the Lord says to the church in uh, Ephesus. Hang on a second here, Revelation. Right here. Whoops, a couple more pages here, Charlie. Let's see here. Thyatira, where are we? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, Philadelphia, I don't remember where in the order it is. Let's see here. Okay, Eph uh, first one to the angel of the church of Ephesus right these things he says who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands I know your works your labor your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil good job folks and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary nevertheless I have this against you that you no, you left your first love. All the doctrine in the world doesn't matter diddly if you don't love Jesus in the process. Every time I bring up this point, I mention the, the uh, professors at seminary. A lot of the professors there know the Bible so well. They know every position on theology and they know that the right one is this, and yet they don't have any love for the Lord. And what good is that? All of the head knowledge in the world without loving. And I tell you, I do it all the time. When I'm sitting there and I'm trying to study for a sermon or where I'm writing a Bible commentary, or it's throughout the day, and I think, am I falling away from my love for Jesus? That needs to be first. And this goes through my mind all the time. Is this something that is not just to show how smart I am in doing this sermon with all these great intricacies, but is it something that will glorify Jesus? Because if it's not, then it, you know, it may be good for the people, but it's not good for me in, in any way, shape, or form. You have to remember your first love. So he told them that they had left their first love, and it says, uh, and here it is. I mean, you've left your first love. He's told them all the great things you're doing. You got great doctrine, and you you know you're feeding the poor, and you're uh, down in the projects every Saturday, and you're doing all this great stuff. But remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. They were in love with Jesus, and they probably didn't have very good doctrine. And I was talking to that guy that was here earlier. I you know I said 
he, he kind of was like, well, yeah, the bigger churches, I'm not really keen on them because, you know, they, they give these sappy messages. And I said, yeah, but they have a purpose. And I said, they bring people to Jesus. I said, the church here, we don't bring a lot of people to Jesus. We give them great doctrine. And there are people that are saved and they're online and they say, you know, I want to give my life to the Lord. That does happen. But, you know, a, a, a church that doesn't have the greatest theology in the world may bring a lot of people to Jesus. And then hopefully they would usher them in the future off to a church where they're going to get good doctrine. Okay. We already talked about why churches like that normally do not have a section that has really good doctrine. It's because what happens when these people are running the church and getting people saved and these people have great doctrine and they're holding the word and they're teaching it competently. What happens in that church? Happens all the time. Division. The church divides and then we can't be around you anymore. You're just not following doctrine properly and off they do and they start a church. Okay. And that church has great doctrine, but guess what they do very quickly? Well, no, they forget their first love because doctrine becomes their God, okay? And we can't let that happen. We've got to be very, very careful about those type of things, okay? So um, it's, doctrine is important. You know, I think I stand on doctrine above anything else except the love of Jesus. We have to have that in us because if we don't, we're all we become are people that just want to finger point at other people, all right? I, there are a lot of people out there that really love Jesus that attend churches where the doctrine isn't that great, and I don't hate those people. I'd like to see them mature, but as long as they're in love with Jesus, he is very happy with that, I assure you. Yep. Um, let's see here. Um, okay, where was I? Um, okay, uh, his reminder to Timothy of their previous conversation was that he was to remain in Ephesus. I know I read this, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Okay. Doctrine is important. Okay. But Jesus years later said, you've forgotten your first love. Remember both. Paul had confidence enough in Timothy that he could remain without him and still be found competent to uphold sound and proper doctrine. Further, he would be bold enough to make a charge concerning what was wrong and what was right. Paul's words demonstrate this confidence in his young protege. The word translated as no other doctrine is one found only here and in 1 Timothy 6 verse 3. It indicates a different doctrine and is thus anything than that which had been once delivered by apostolic teaching. The only way that you are going to know what was uh, delivered by apostolic teaching is what? Right here, this Bible. You read your Bible. If you don't do that, you cannot know what was delivered by apostolic teaching. Because, and I got to tell you, a lot of people know what the Bible says, and yet they read it and they take it out of context. And so you have another problem. Uh, I've said this a million times, and here comes a million one. The book of Acts is what? It is descriptive. It doesn't prescribe anything after Acts 1, 6, 7, and 8, when Jesus tells them to go out and do the things. It describes what happened in the church age. Now, there are descriptive things in there for the time, like Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. They were prescribing things for the church to do at that time. But some of those things don't match with what Paul later says. Why? Because it was an expediency for the people to do until the doctrine was set by the church. And the Gentile-led church epistles are from Romans through Philemon. 
okay? Having said that, when you read the book of Acts, you must remember that it is, it is describing what occurred. That's all it's doing. It's describing the establishment of the church. It's describing, uh, you know, this guy ba got baptized and this happened. This guy got baptized and this happened. This guy got baptized. And none of the three baptism accounts in Acts 8 and 10, uh, 2, 8, and 10, none of them match, okay? And so you say, well, we've got to pick one. No, you don't. That is a descriptive account. The one that is closest to what we would uh, apply in our lives is Acts chapter 10. Okay, that's where the Holy Spirit fell down on Cornelius. They were just listening. The Holy Spirit came down on them. They were saved, okay? But that isn't the end of the matter with baptism. You, you, more instruction elsewhere. Anyway, if you take Acts in a prescriptive manner and you start saying, well, it says in Acts 2.38, blah, 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 you are going to have a contradiction with something Paul says later. You're going to. Or you're going to have a contradiction with something Jesus said in the Gospels. Okay? And in the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, they were directed to Israel. He was speaking to Israel under the law about matters of law. Okay? So you have to understand the context. Who is being spoken to and what is the purpose of it? Because if you don't do that, you're going to have conflict of or contradiction between different passages. Okay? We're being given instruction in theology, but not necessarily instruction in doctrine. So you've got to be very careful with how you handle the Synoptic Gospels, how you handle the Book of Acts, how you handle even the later epistles, which are, uh, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. We can uh, accept them in a certain way to us, but the epistles written by James and by Peter are directed specifically to the Jewish people the 12 tribes scattered abroad, etc. There's a reason why they're after Paul's epistles is because they are directed specifically to end times Jews. We've got the church age here. We've got what happens after the church age here. And God structured the Bible in that way so that we can follow along with redemptive history. And that's all based on, you remember where that is originally based on what? The blessing of Noah right. to his sons, Shem, <coughs> Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you read that blessing, you understand what he's saying, you will understand the redemptive narrative of human history. It's all right there in black and white. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay? But Ham is uh, uh, given a curse, not a blessing, but it says that uh, Japheth will, anybody? He will dwell in, his tent. in the tents of Shem, okay? The tent of Japheth will dwell within the tents of Shem. You've got Shem here, you've got Shem here, you've got Japheth right here, okay? It's very clear what God is doing when you understand the redemptive narrative from Genesis all the way through. Wonderful stuff. It's just a great book. God has given us the most wonderful treasure to understand his word anyway, uh, or to appreciate him through his word, I should say. Um, okay, so um, Paul's words demonstrate. Yes, okay, the word translate. I've read that. Okay, Paul will outline such things considered other, other doctrine in the verses ahead. They center on the law, and thus it is the same group of people as had troubled so many other churches in Paul's epistles. They are called in the Bible what? Or what do we call them? What term do we use for them? Judaizers. Absolutely. Very good. They are the Judaizers. They come in with their infectious teachings, and they disturb the believers with their unsound doctrines. As these things pertain to law, and as the law is fulfilled in Christ— 
It is the same concepts which have been dug up and play out on display in modern times by the Hebrew Roots Movement. Paul warned against these types of nonsense, and his words still warn today. Stay away from law observance. The entire book of Galatians is based on that. Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 10.9 are all explicit. The law is annulled, it is set aside, it is done. Colossians 2 verse 4, the law was nailed to the cross. Did somebody go up to Jesus' cross and nail a copy of the law? No. No. Jesus' body is the embodiment. He is the embodiment of the law, and he died, thus fulfilling it. A new covenant was introduced. One covenant supersedes the other. You cannot have two at the same time, okay? Israel didn't figure that out. Hence, it says that that which is uh, uh, obsolete is soon to disappear. And it will. It will when Israel comes to Christ as a nation. That's ahead of us. That's, oh boy, we're going to see that in the next few uh, judges sermons. It's so clearly pictured. We saw that last week. We're going to see after that the breakdown of it over the next Gideon sermons. It is incredible what God is showing us about the future of Israel. Absolutely astonishing stuff. It, it's all right there. Israel will someday come to understand this and they will be saved as a nation. Um, okay, life application. Uh, there is one doctrine concerning the law. It is fulfilled in Christ and ended. Any resurrection of law observance is to be rejected. This comes back every single cult that you are going to see that comes knocking at your door or that you turn on the TV and they start telling you these things. It will always come back to one thing. Me. I need to do this. Seventh-day Adventists. I, I've got to observe the Sabbath or I can't be saved. i got to do this. I got. It always comes back to you. Salvation is of, it says in the book of uh, Jonah, of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He did the work. We do the receiving. And then from there, we live according to what this, the epistles have told us to live. Okay? It is not up to us to save ourselves, and it is not up to us to continue to be saved. He has done the work, and thank God for that. Because if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. Absolutely. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, let's see here. Um, this shouldn't be difficult to grasp, but apparently there are many thick skulls out there. May the words of Paul act as a drill to get through that thick bone and into the gray area of law observance heretics. Okay. Got to stay away from it. Paul argues against that more than any other point of doctrine, and he does it in almost every one of his epistles. Stay away from these people that reintroduce the law. All you're doing is you're, you're setting yourself apart from Christ. You have made yourself a stranger to him. You're obligated to observe the whole law, etc., etc. He says it in 50 different ways, maybe more. It just is the, the point that he is adamant about, is that you are free in Christ from the restraint of the law. Now live for Christ under the commands of the New, New Testament epistles. All right? Okay, so we are in 1 Timothy 1, verse 4 nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Oh, that's a great verse. Go ahead. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Okay. I, just such a great verse. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just <laughs> yeah, got so excited. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Okay, Paul says it explicitly. It's coming up in one of my sermons. I say it about once a month, but uh, uh, if it is not of faith, it is... Of works. No. 
anything that is not of faith is begin. What? Say it. Somebody said it. Sin. If it's not a faith, it's sin. Thank That's you. it. It's, if you're doing something and it's not a faith, it is sin. But as I say, uh, thank goodness for 2 Corinthians 5.19, which says that uh, uh, we are not being imputed sin. Because if we were, and how often do we fail at doing things in faith, right? We would all lose our salvation immediately, okay? But we are not being imputed sin, and thank God for that. So, uh, but there is no reward for anything you do that is not done in faith. And if it's done in faith, it doesn't matter how small it is, you will receive your reward. Okay, Paul had just told Timothy that he was to charge certain members of the church at Ephesus to teach no other doctrine. Now, building on that, he said, nor give heed to fables. This is certainly a word of warning concerning the oral traditions of the Jewish schools of learning. This is something that happens all the time in the world today, okay? There are so many teachings that have come out of the Jewish culture and out of the Mishnah, the Gemara, which is the Talmud. There's so many of them that people have introduced into the church. It, nothing even makes any sense anymore in many churches. They're saying, well, you know, speaking about this in relation to the rapture or speaking about this in relation to you know, the Feast of Tabernacles or something. They have all of these things that were from oral traditions or from the Jewish side of things. And it's not scriptural, but people don't know that that's not even in the Bible. And so they just, they think that this is the correct thing. You got to be very, very careful to separate what is in scripture and what isn't. That doesn't mean it's not valid, but keep it separate. Yes? Is it still what they believe today because they believe this uh, Torah that is uh, Absolutely. Oral? Yeah, the oral, oral Torah. You know, we talked about that during uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, Sergio had this light come on above him, is that the, uh, the uh, oral tradition is not what that is speaking of at all. That's explained in the book of Deuteronomy. I can't remember the exact verse, but I can go back and I can get you that. What the second is... Okay, anyway, and I remember you emailed me after that, and I said, ah, it makes complete sense, but it has nothing to do with an oral tradition, zero, okay? What God has written is what we have, okay? God doesn't give oral traditions to us that we have to somehow mysteriously figure out. Um, okay, so going on, um, uh, where are we? Okay, yeah, now to charge certain members that teach no other doctrine, um, and this is certainly a word, yes, the oral tradition, or it is called the law upon the lip, which was passed down concerning rights and rules of conduct for the people. In other words, the law upon the lip means I can say whatever I want and God said it, and so now you need to do it. God doesn't work that way. If he wants you to have something to run your life, it will be in his word. Now, obviously, there were times in Israel where there were prophets and they spoke the word of the Lord. But what is the most common thing to happen in the book of Jeremiah when Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord? The most common thing. You see it all the time. He speaks the word of the Lord and then, well, not, not from him, another prophet gets up and says exactly the opposite. Okay. Right? That's not a sound way of doing things, and people would always follow this guy and not Jeremiah. That's why he was thrown into a cell, or that's why he was thrown into a pit, or whatever. Okay, It's because everybody was claiming to be a prophet, and it, they had to have a way of determining who the real prophets were. And sometimes it took many, many years to realize, but eventually, what did Daniel do when he was in Babylon? He cited 
the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah was proven to be a true prophet and all those other people that came up and they did all these things in front of the kings, all we remember is their names and their false lies that are recorded in the book of Jeremiah. Okay, so um, now we have the completed Bible. It's, it's completed. It says on the last page at the last verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. And it was sealed and the book was done. The apostolic age is over and we are not getting more revelation from God, despite the Pentecostal church down the road. Okay, that is the way it is. This is what we have to tell us what to do. These oral traditions, whether it's from a Jew or whether it's from a pastor up in a pulpit, don't listen to that if it doesn't work, coincide with this word. Do not listen to it because you'll only be misdirected. Okay, Joseph Smith has misdirected 50 million people in this world into Mormonism. Okay, stick with the word and that won't happen to you. Um, what we got here? Um, okay, so yeah, conduct of the people. The rabbinical schools supposedly maintained these authoritative oral doctrines and surely they were expanded on anytime someone felt they needed to further codify some part of Jewish life. Okay, so God is changing basically. He's evolving through these schools. Eventually, many of these oral traditions were put into writing by Rabbi Yehuda, becoming the Mishnah. This was combined with another document, the Gemara, and together they form the Talmud. The Talmud is the codification of Jewish law, which is adhered to by observant Jews to this day. They may not know the Bible at all, but they'll know what the Talmud says, okay? The Bible is a secondary thing. It's a book kind of of myths, and it's kind of this, but they will hold to the Talmud. This is why they're in the trouble they're in to this day. And until they come to Christ and put all that nonsense behind them, they're going to continue to suffer as a people. And as it says in the book of Zechariah, two-thirds of the nation is going to perish. Okay? Jesus gives them the warning. He gave them the warning for their time. The warning is repeated. That which has been will be again. When you see these things happening, flee. Flee. There's going to be a certain number of people that will take the, the cue. They will flee, and they will be saved. And as a nation, they will be saved. But it's going to be a terrible time. This is all recorded right in the Word. Okay? Uh, Paul was a trained rabbi, and he was fully aware of these traditions. He was also aware of the fact that Jesus did not hold them as authoritative. He explicitly said it again and again and again to them. For example, we see his words um, to those he held it, who held them in the book of Mark. I'll just take you to Mark 7. He says it several times, but uh, Mark 7, it says right here, He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other things you do. Okay? And he explicitly used the example of, uh, what was the example he used explicitly to show them that what they were doing was against the law of God, the law of Korban, remember the law of Korban, okay? They could take what was the parents given to them and they could put it in the temple, like we'll say it's a bank, okay? Take it and put it here, and so now that's Korban. It's a gift devoted to God, and so they don't have to use that for their parents, okay? Which violates the word of God, 
Okay, one of the Ten Commandments, by the way. And then after their parents were dead, they would take this back out of the bank because the gift was used to God and now it's no longer. And then they go out and have their big party for the rest of their life. Okay, and so Jesus spoke to them about those things and he said, these things are inappropriate, right? Understanding that these things were nonsense, Paul held the scripture alone as the ruling guide of the faith. Remembering also that the only scripture at Paul's time was the Old Testament. There was no New New Testament. He was in the process of writing it, maybe not even realizing that he was. Matthew was writing his gospel. Luke was making his record and the book of Acts. And okay, but these things were not scripture at the time. So the things that the apostles taught had to be considered the authoritative word. And that's why he was so careful to say that if, uh, you know, he says it in two, te- uh, 2 Thessalonians. We went through that just a couple, uh, over the past couple of months. He says right there in there, um, uh, I think it's chapter 2, he said, um, yeah, now brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he tells them all these. Um, he says, uh, oh yeah, here it is. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. So he conditioned that based on his opening uh, uh, words in 2 Thessalonians is that what the apostles taught was considered as authoritative. And now those things were being put into writing and certain churches were holding on to them and eventually they were compiled and they were put into uh, scripture. And God knew this would happen. He had his hand all over this process and so we can be absolutely certain that this word that we have been given is the word that we need. It is the correct word of God, okay? And it's internally validating. It's something that we don't need to worry, well, does that book belong in the Bible or not? It internally validates itself. Everything about the word is beautifully orchestrated so that we can know that it is the word. Now, we gotta get going because um, we're running out of time, so I gotta finish this up. I didn't realize how late it was. Um, Wow, I don't know if I'm gonna finish this verse. I gotta read really fast, so hang on. Um, understanding that these things were nonsense, Paul held the scripture alone. Paul next refers to endless genealogies. The Bible, especially Genesis and Chronicles, is full of genealogies. They are scattered throughout other books as well. These genealogies inevitably would be twisted and spiritually manipulated to show a Jewish line that was superior to all others. Being a rabbi himself, Paul knew that this was the intent of constantly referring to these genealogies. By allowing the Judaizers to teach these things, it would effectually end any idea of a church of both Jews and Gentiles who were unified as one. Instead, two distinct classes, one supposedly superior over the other, would develop and flourish. All things Jewish would be considered as the ideal, all things Gentile would be considered as base and contemptible. Paul knew that this would only cause disputes. Paul's words, cause disputes. Such fables and endless genealogies have no positive bearing on Christian life and the proper conduct of our faith. They are simply divisive issues intended to subjugate Gentile life and culture. Their introduction into Christian life would make it a walk of works striving to be more Jewish and thus more acceptable to God. If you don't believe this, you can go to a dozen or a thousand Messianic churches around the country and you'll see that these people, Gentiles, and they're wearing Jewish clothes and they're trying to be like Jews. You know, Jonathan Kahn. 
Well, it, it, it's exactly what Paul warned against. Jonathan Kahn's church. I got a guy that I know, he was online. Uh, I mean, he, he attended there. And he, he said, it's like you get lost in this stuff. You just get absorbed into it. And it just becomes like any cult. It just becomes a cult where you have to do this or you're not a good Christian, etc. So, C word again. Uh, yes. Control. Control. This is contrary to what Paul says, godly edification, which is in faith. The entire plan of salvation, which is found in Christ Jesus, is one of faith in what he has done. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to faith in him. But to introduce these Jewish traditions and genealogies would then inevitably nullify this precept. The ground would no longer be level. Instead, the Gentiles would be ever striving to become more Jewish and thus somehow more acceptable. This is exactly what goes on in these churches to this day. I visited a couple Messianic uh, congregations and I can tell you this is true. Paul clearly stated to the Gentiles in Athens in Acts 17 that all people are God's offspring being descended from one man. The Jewish people were chosen for a specific purpose and the law was introduced for a set period of time. In Christ, the law is ended. The distinction between Jew and Gentile is set aside. That doesn't mean the Jews aren't still Jews. They are, okay? But the distinction in Christ is completely set aside. Paul's words throughout his epistles confirm this precept time and time again. All people are favored, favorable to God by faith in Christ's work alone. Nothing else comes into the equation. Life application and we'll be done just, just on time. The Judaizers of today, some messianic synagogues, and the Hebrew Roots movement teach the exact poison that Paul warns against in this verse. All things Jewish are held in high esteem. Even certain translations of the Bible are supposedly the best because they have a Jewish perspective, using Hebrew terms almost as a talisman of spiritual insight. Law observance, always in a pick-and-choose manner, has become fashionable once again. Gentiles are being swept up into this nonsense, and it will only lead to one sad end. If they are attempting to merit God's favor through these works, then faith is excluded. Only condemnation can result, so keep far, far away from this heretical nonsense. Okay. Um, the reason why I have to end on time is because the video, if it goes one minute longer than it's supposed to, it causes the guy that does the video work a ton of work. He, and I don't want to do that to him, so we have to close on time. But stay away from the law. This is what Paul warns against again and again and again in his epistles. It is what uh, the Old Testament types and pictures continuously, week after week after week, say the same thing. I practice next week's sermon, which I've been waiting to do this since the first time I read it, about the uh, the fleece, wringing out the fleece and the water in it. What does all that mean? And you're going to see exactly what it means, and it bears exactly what we're talking about right here. Everything in the Word is given to lead us to one conclusion. We need God's grace, and that's all we need, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that is found in Jesus. Thank you that he has done all the work necessary to reconcile us to you and that we, through faith in that, are reconciled to you, wholly and completely and forever. Now, Lord, give us the wisdom to follow your word, to be obedient to it so that we can be sound vessels that are compliant to your will, that are willing to tell others 
that are doing deeds of faith and in faith so that we can uh, uh, be pleasing to you while at the same time instructive to others. May it be so to your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. 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 All right, let me back this up before we go over our minute. And we'll say goodbye to everybody right now. Goodbye, everybody. Can they hear us? Let's see, break.